Well, as Clovis said, welcome to summer. And for those of you who are tuning in and watching us from vacation, we're just slightly jealous for wherever you are. But I love, I love this season because I think what it does is it gives us a chance to change our place and for some of us to change our pace. And when you do that, you typically end up with a new perspective. And so this week, as I was preparing for this message, I was going back over all of my favorite vacations. And I was remembering my favorite vacation growing up. My family went to the East Coast, to the D.C. area. We're from Las Vegas. And I was 10 years old. And my brother and I were texting this week. He was like, he was like seven. So he doesn't remember it like I did. But I just remember seeing all the things, the White House, the Capitol, Ford's Theater, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, the, the Washington Memorial, Washington's home, Jefferson's home. Yorktown, Jamestown, Williamsburg, Fort McHenry. I mean, it was a crazy long trip and we saw so many things. And I brought a photo of me from that era right here. This is Scott. That's me rocking the fanny pack right there. You know, I look back on that time and I go, what are we going to look back on from now that was like the fanny pack? You know, I hope nothing that bad, but, but I had some great style back then. And I just thought about that trip and the fact that I came back and then I looked at our country and history with a new perspective. I saw things through different eyes. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of just this time that we're living in today and how hard it is to have perspective. We now live in a world that's driven by 24-7 news. We're driven by constant engagement to our phones. And we're inundated with more information in a couple of days than some of our ancestors had in a given year or years. And so it's so hard to have a healthy perspective. And for many of us, when it comes to the world that we're living in, the things that are happening to us, our reaction can be summed up in an emoji, this emoji right here. We're just, we're just overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed. We're confused. And especially when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, we're recognizing how hard that is today. And I wanted to share the words of some writers who I think encapsulate how maybe you feel I know how I feel. One writer said, so it falls out in this world in evil days like this that the church walks onward like a wayfarer stricken by the world's hostility but comforted by the mercy of God. A little bit flowery, but I can feel that. Another writer I read this week said, your ideas of virtue speaking to the culture, on the other hand, come from mere human opinion and you're commanded by human authority. Human knowledge of what is good is easily deceived. And then finally, this guy right here, he said, if you're going to walk with Jesus Christ, you are going to be opposed. In our days, to be a true Christian is really to become a scandal. Now I share these And you notice I haven't put quotations to any of them. That first one, that came from Augustine in 426 AD, 1600 years ago. That guy who was talking about his culture, not understanding human virtue, that was Tertullian in 197 AD. He's the one who helped us put language around God as Trinity. And that last one about a Christian being a scandal, that was George Whitfield in the mid-1700s as our nation was being founded. You see, what we lose in our world today is perspective, and we forget that the normative Christian experience is this. We're not the first generation to go, how do we live as a follower of Jesus in this crazy culture? 
From the very beginning, followers of Jesus have been challenged to live out their faith in a culture that didn't reflect their values. And there are so many places because we're inundated with more information, more access, more awareness than we've ever had before. We think in ways that were unique or different. And there are some unique things about our day. But there are also some things that are very normal. Going back to 1700s, going back to 197, and going back to 426. And it's in that world that God has called us to live. It's in this moment that he's placed us. And yet there are many of us that long for different days. If you grew up in a time different than this one, you long maybe for a different experience at another time and in another place. And it makes sense because there may have been some things about that world that made it easier than this world. But the scriptures call us to be careful with that. In Ecclesiastes 7, the writer says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not wisdom that you ask this. See, the writer's warning us of sanctifying our nostalgia, of looking back on the past and sanitizing it to make it better than it was, or to demonize people and make them worse than they were. You may look back on the past and go, man, it was so much better than, yeah, maybe for you. If you're a white man, but if you're a woman or a black man, it wasn't a better day. It wasn't easier for them to be a believer. It wasn't an easier time for them to live in. See, we can look back on the past and long for those days, or we can ask God, God, you put me here. I didn't choose to live in this crazy world. I didn't choose to live in this crazy time. I didn't choose to live with these challenges and these difficulties, but in your divine wisdom, this is where you put me. So give me wisdom. Show me how to follow you. There are some things about that world that are way harder. And there are some things about this world that are way harder. But God, show me how to follow you here today. One of the people that's been helping me put together this series is a pastor from Southern California named Larry Osborne, and he wrote this. He said, our culture's response to Bible-believing Christians has gone from grudging respect to a patronizing pat on the head to a marginalizing indifference to outright hostility. And there's some of you, you've lived through all four of these stages. You've seen that shift happen. And that's the reason why we're beginning a new series today for the months of June and July. It's called And. And it's about being faithful to Christ and winsome to culture. Because there's many people who in our world are standing firm on the faithful to Christ side. The problem is, is they're just jerks. And following Jesus is never the path to being a jerk. And yet there are others that care so much about being liked and approved and popular that they're giving away the farm. And most of us fall in one of those categories or the other. And we're really good at judging the people who are in our category. And so in this series, we're like, what does it mean for us to be faithful to Christ and winsome to culture. Now you may say, Scott, I don't know what winsome means. What's well, one of my favorite words, and I want to introduce it to you. The word winsome means appealing, attractive, compelling, and engaging. 
When someone is making a winsome argument, you feel drawn to agree with them or see things from their perspective. When someone's living in a winsome way, you feel drawn to them and you like them more and you connect with them more because what they're doing is compelling and engaging and it's attractive. And as followers of Jesus, we're not simply called to be faithful to him. We're also called to live out our faith in a way that other people see as winsome that they want to learn more about so they can connect with the Jesus that we're being faithful to. And just like in this image here, there's faithful to Christ and winsome to culture. There's this and in the middle, the place where they come together. And that's where we're going to pursue what does it look like to live there. And to do that, we're going to spend time in two books in the Old Testament, Daniel and Esther, who lived in hostile cultures that didn't agree with their faith. And they had to figure out what does it mean for us to be faithful to God and winsome and compelling to these people around us. And so if you don't believe the Bible is relevant, especially the Old Testament, this series will be enlightening for you. And if you're watching online or if you go on a vacation, we're going to encourage you to stay with us and track with us all throughout the summer. Because I think God has some very unique things to say to us. And he's already been challenging the heck out of me. And so I'm going to invite you into that place. So today we're going to begin with our big idea for this first week in the series. So if you brought a bulletin in, open it up, pull out your hand out and fill in these blanks. Our big idea is this. To live an and life, we need to trust in God's character and embrace our identity. To live an and life, not just one or the other, but both, and we need to trust in God's character and embrace our identity. Today, we're going to start this message, not in Daniel and not in Esther, but actually in the book of Jeremiah chapter 29. Because Jeremiah gives us the context for this section of scripture. This moment that Daniel and Esther were living in. And so in Jeremiah 29, we're going to explore where they ended up. If you're new to the Bible, you typically open your physical Bible. You hit Psalms or Proverbs. Go towards the back and you hit Isaiah and then Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet that God sent during the latter days of Israel to warn them about the consequences of their actions. You see, hundreds of years before, God had made a covenant with their ancestor, Abraham. And then he made another covenant with Moses. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But there were some expectations God had for the people. And again and again, they broke them and they abandoned God and they served other gods. And so God sent prophet after 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 prophet. And it didn't matter how many prophets he sent, they didn't hear. And God is long-suffering. But eventually there came a time for accountability, and so God sent judgment on his people. So beginning in Jeremiah 29, verse 1, this is what we read. It says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now there's some history stuff that we're going to skip over for time, but I go down to verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile to Babylon. This is God's word to them, what he wants them to do while they're in exile. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take daughters... As, uh, 
Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they dream. Because other prophets were saying, hey, it's, we're not going to be here very long. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to the palace. And this is, for many of you, your favorite verse in the Bible, but you've never read the context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That was the word that, that God sent to those people. You know, Scott, that's a lot of scripture. Well, I wanted you to hear that because I wanted you to recognize what it was that God was saying to them and the context of some very familiar words that many of you have heard in the Bible but never known the context of. And today what I want to do is this. I want to share with you three ways that we, in 2018 in Prescott, are different but the same with them. We might be able to give a long list of ways that we're different, and you might be able to list all those. We've got indoor plumbing, thank God. Hot showers iPhones, the jury's still out on that one. But there's three ways that we're the same that I want to focus on today. And the first one is this, that God's plans are often not our plans. God's plans are often not our plans. See, none of these people expected to be born in Jerusalem and die in Babylon. But when God sends you a word through the prophet, like he does in verse 10, that you're going to be here for 70 years, you do the math and you go, I'm probably going to die here. That's a jagged pill to swallow. Some of you are, are dealing in your life with places where you've recognized that what you thought was going to happen and what you planned is not what God's doing. And we discussed this a few weeks ago that that often leads us to a place of collision where we have to decide, am I going to keep pushing for my agenda or am I going to get on God's? And that's why Jeremiah 29, 11 is in the Bible. There's a reason why God says to them, for I know the plans I have for you because they think God doesn't have plans for them that are good. If there's a reason he has to say this because in their mind, they're questioning God's plans. Plans for your welfare and not for evil. Because if you thought you were going to live your life in Jerusalem and then you discovered you were going to die in Babylon, that doesn't feel like welfare. That feels like evil. And then he says, I have plans to give you a future and a hope. And he needed to say that because they were seeing their vision of the future and their hopes crashed against the rocks. See, this is why this verse was so comforting to them long before it performed well on Facebook and bumper stickers today. 
Because they had just heard a word that said, you're going to be here for a while as exiles and captives and slaves. And I'm calling you to remember that I have plans for you. And I have a a goal to seek your welfare. And I'm going to give you a future and a hope. And for some of you, this is the place where you realize that you're not all that different from them. You're living in a similar place. You moved to Prescott. And God's plans while you were here are different than your own. Or maybe you were born in Prescott and you've tried to leave and go somewhere else and God still has you here. And here's what happens is sometimes when we begin to wrestle with God's plans are different than our plans, we begin to doubt that God is good. You may be surprised that I'm saying that in church, but that's just where we live. When God's plans are different than our plans, we begin to doubt the goodness of God. And if we doubt God's goodness, then there's sometimes we wonder, well, why would I trust in his promises? Like there's people who make me promises and I don't trust them. Why? Because I don't trust the character behind the promise, right? If somebody gives you their word and you don't think they have the character to back that word up, you don't trust their promises. And so if you're in a situation where you're doubting God's goodness and you see a promise of his that he's going to have a hope and a future for you and he's going to work this to your good, why would you trust that promise if you doubt his goodness? And that isn't even the worst of it. If you begin to doubt God's goodness and then you struggle to trust in his promises, well, then why would you remain faithful to him? Why would you do these hard things he's asked you to do? And if you're not going to do the hard things he's asked you to do, then why wouldn't you just compromise so that the people you're with would at least just like you and approve of you? It's not a bad thing to be winsome to others. It's a bad thing to be winsome to others when you're looking to them for what only God can give. And we tend to judge people who struggle in this area over here when in actuality, the backstory behind the struggle may be much deeper than we realize. Because everybody has a story if you'll stop long enough to listen. And you can't listen to somebody and judge them at the same time. So again, these people aren't that different from us. If we shut up our iPhones, they think we were crazy. But they're not that different from us. The second way that we're different but the same, number two, is that God's calling is for us to be for others. For both them and us, God's calling for us on our lives is for us to be for others. I read to you the scripture from the English Standard Version, which is my favorite translation to preach from. But often when I study, I compare translations to get a a wider picture. And one of my favorite translations to compare to is called the Christian Standard Bible. It came out about two or three years ago. Can we go back to the 29.7 verse? There we go. It says in that verse, (laughs) 29.7, to pursue the well-being of the city. That's God's calling them. He says, you're in the city, you're exiles, pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Now we'll come back to that word. That's an interesting word. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for when it thrives, you will thrive. This was what God called them to do. My plans weren't your plans. You didn't plan on being here, but since you're here, 
And while you're here, what I want you to do is to pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Now, in 21st century America, I use the word deported, and we have a whole thing that comes to mind. But according to Jeremiah, God was the author of their deportation. And in a city that they were deported to as exiles and slaves, he says, I want you to pursue the well-being of that city. That word well-being, which is also another version, is the word that thrives is translated as. In your Bible, you might read it as peace or prosperity or welfare. Seek the well-being. All of those words are translations of one word, and it's the Hebrew word shalom. Which is often used as a greeting from one person to another to wish them well, to wish them peace. But it's also a vision of what God designed for his people, that they would be whole and healthy and thrive. And so the first thing that God calls the people to do is to seek the thriving of the city. To seek the thriving of the people who exiled me? To seek the thriving of the people who took me away from my homeland and put me here? Yes. And the same thing is a calling for us. God's calling you and I to the city that we're in. Most of us not deported here. Although you may feel like it. He's calling us to seek the thriving of this city. You go, yeah, but there's people in this city that want nothing to do with God. Same thing was true in Babylon. And in fact, Babylon was way worse. Like, I'm from Las Vegas. My city, like, just wins when it comes to sin. We just win. And we have nothing on Babylon. For thousands of years, Babylon has been the standard for sin and debauchery and brokenness. And if God can call his people to seek the thriving of that city, he can call us to seek the thriving of our city. To seek the well-being of people who want nothing to do with God. Because that's the heart of a reckless God who shows reckless love. That he wants people to thrive, even people who haven't yet discovered him. The second thing he calls them to do is to pray for their city. You know, last week Pastor Josh challenged us with this idea that for many of us, our prayers, if they were answered, would only advance our kingdom. They wouldn't advance God's. And so I've been thinking, as I've been praying the last week about what I've been praying. And I wonder if the same things happened for you. How often do you pray for the city that God sent you to? And when you do pray for it, what do you pray for? Do you pray for it to stay exactly the same? Do you pray for it not to grow? Do you pray for it not to change? Do you pray for all the road construction signs to go away so you can actually get somewhere on time? Or do you pray to God that he would make your city thrive? And the third thing is, he says, when your city thrives... You will thrive too. There we go. He tied the thriving of his people to the thriving of Babylon. I mean, it's a mind-blowing thing. That the, the worst city in the history of the world, he would tie his people to and say, when you seek the thriving of that city and that city thrives, you'll thrive too. It's a crazy letter to get from Jeremiah. And yet it's our calling because he's calling them to move from slaves to citizens. To move from people who are here against their own will and just trying to break free to making that city great and better than it ever could have been. 
And that's God's calling for us. Our vision as a church is to be a church that is for Prescott and for the world. That in a world that often knows what the church believes about things, that we would be a church that also is known for being for people, even people who don't agree with what we believe. Because I don't know about you, but most people I encounter in the world have some idea of what Christians believe. They just think Christians hate them, are against them, and aren't for them. And so what would it mean for us if we embraced this and calling? Yes, to be faithful to Christ. Yes, to hold true to the scriptures and what they teach. But to be winsome to our culture, even a culture that to us seems to be going the way of Babylon. And what if in that culture, we didn't try to just survive, but we asked God to help us thrive? Because the history of the church has been that Christians have thrived in the worst of circumstances. And in the presence of abundance and blessing, we've abandoned God. That isn't just the history of America. It's the history of Christians throughout history. And this is why I've loved Larry Osborne's book, Thriving in Babylon. I love that title because it reminds us that Daniel thrived in Babylon and we can too. And so speaking of Daniel, if you have your Bible still, open up to Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to introduce Daniel a little bit with the time that we have left. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, great name, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people to Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is another term for the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. To Daniel, he called him Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, he called him Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now stay on the slide right here. Many of you know these guys by their names at the end. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But what you may not know is that this is the way that the Babylonians would handle the people they brought into their world as exiles. They would bring them in from other countries and they would rename them and give them Babylonian names. And I owe Pastor Chris Hodges, the author of The Daniel Dilemma, this insight because their names and the shifts are really remarkable. See, Daniel's name in Hebrew means Yahweh is my judge. His name in the language of the Babylonians is Belteshazzar, which means lady protect the king. He goes from a male name to a female name. From Yahweh is my judge to protect the Babylonian king. A demeaning name. A name that altered his identity. The next guy, Hananiah. His name means Yahweh has been gracious. His new name, Shadrach. I am fearful of God. 
drastic change. Mishael, his Hebrew name means who can compare to my God. His new name, Meshach, I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. Are you seeing the pattern here? Finally, Azariah, the last of the four, his name is Yahweh has helped me. His new name, the servant of Nebo. And Nebo was the son of Marduk, the god of the Babylonians. See, what they were trying to do is to take their names associated with the one true God, eliminate that, and give them a new name about the Babylonian God who was not for them, who was not gracious to them, but who was to be feared. Lesson number three, our enemy's goal is to attack our identity. Our enemy's goal is to attack our identity. Now, before you go running down the line and thinking that our enemy is a media figure or a news network or a person today, Ephesians 6.12 tells us who our identity is. Our enemy says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. See, we often don't think about spiritual warfare, and I'm not the kind of guy who sees a devil behind every bush and blames everything in my life that goes wrong on spiritual warfare. But C.S. Lewis was right when he said that our two biggest problems and errors with the devil is thinking that everything that's wrong is his fault or not thinking about him at all. And we have an enemy that like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego wants to attack our identity because if he can rob our identity, he can rob our effectiveness. See, what God says about you is the truest thing about you. We believe that what God says about you, since he's the one who created you, and he's the one who sent Jesus to die for you, that he has the best perspective on who I am and who you are. But our enemy's goal is to squash that and change that identity so that we won't live from that. Because if these guys shifted their perspective from Yahweh is gracious to I'm fearful of God, then they wouldn't be faithful to that God. They would just care about that culture they were put in. And this is why our identity is so important. If you struggle with this or you want to learn more, we just did a series in February and March called The Emoji Exchange. And we looked at Romans 8, which is one of the best passages on our identity. But as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a significant figure in my life. Well, for most of my life, up until a couple years ago, his name is John Randall's. He's this crazy guy with a long gray mullet in the back. My parents went to college with John in the 70s. And then John came to our church in the 90s to preach at a conference. And John had such fire and passion that as a teenager, I was mesmerized. John spoke to hundreds of professional and college sports teams. He spoke to political and business leaders. He pastored local churches. He was a, an amazing man. And in 2014, he contracted pancreatic cancer and he went home to be with the Lord in April of 2015. And as I was Googling this week, looking for just reminders of my friend, I stumbled on one of the last videos of him speaking. And in this video, he shared something that is pertinent to this conversation. And so I want to introduce you to my friend, John Randalls. 
tell my kids, my, my, my students, whoever's I'm working with, I tell them two kinds of people. There's the person when you walk in the room, the room defines you. And then there's the person when you walk in the room, you change the room. And there's just two kinds of people. What are you? You walk in the break room, you walk in the teacher's room, everybody's bitter, you join in, everybody's angry, you join in, everybody's complaining, you join in, everybody's lazy, you join in. Listen, everybody's smoking dope, you're smoking dope, everybody's drinking, you're drinking, everybody's having sex, you're having sex. Room on you, brother. Room on you. Are you the person that when you walk in the room, maybe the bitterness and anger doesn't stop, but I guarantee you, it gets quiet. And most people stops when you walk in the room because they feel really weird doing that stuff around the little sister of Jesus Christ. Or if you're flipping hamburgers after school at minimum wage, when you punch in for four hours, that McDonald's is different. And when you walk out after four hours at minimum wage, the assistant manager looks at the manager and says, have you noticed when she's at the counter, everybody at the counter acts different? Have you noticed that when she's working in the kitchen, the kitchen attitude is different? Have you noticed that when she's wiping off the tables in the dining room, the dining room atmosphere is different? That girl changes our store. And the manager smiles and says, that's right. She's an FCA or at her school. She knows Christ. She changes the room. I've gotten to preach to thousands and thousands of people. I mean, I mean... But if on Monday they tell me this deal is inoperable, it really don't mean nothing. That's the honest to God truth in it. Guess what? Look in the mirror. What matters is, in the time I was given, and I hope I get a lot more time, I'm counting on it. But whether I do or not, was our room changer. That's really what matters. It's a powerful... It's a powerful question. Do you change the room? Or does the room change you? And it doesn't matter if you're a CEO or a sophomore. The question applies. And here's why it's relevant for your identity. Look at the screen. It's relevant because of this. You can go to the next slide. When you know who you are, you change the room. But when you don't know who you are, the room will always change you. See, if you struggle to change the room, that might be because you need the room to validate you. To make you feel like you're enough, you're worthy, you're loved. And when you need the room, you will never change the room. But if you know who you are, you can walk into the room and not need those people to validate you, and God can use you to change the room. That's Daniel's story. He knew who he was, and he was thrust in a room he didn't plan for or expect to be in. And as we'll learn this summer, God used him to change that room. So when you walk in the room, 
Do you change the room? Or does the room change you? Before we go today, I've got three next steps for you. You can put those on the back of your handout if you're taking notes. The first one is this. Identify where your identity is being informed by God and where it's being formed by the world. Where is your identity being informed by who God says you are? And where is it being formed by the world? All of us, I believe, are in both categories. But until you acknowledge those categories, they remain blind spots that you can't submit to God and he can't transform. Number two, determine where you're struggling to trust God's character and plans. Where are you struggling with the gap between what you had planned and what God is doing? Because that's the place you have to begin to deal with God if you're going to be faithful to him. And if this is a place of emotion and anger and rage, then listen to Psalm 62, 8, where it says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. If you're struggling with God's character and his plans, then tell him. Yell at him, scream at him, curse at him if you have to, but pour your heart out to him and go to him that he might transform it. You have it right there in scripture, the command that you're to pour your hearts out to him. Tell him about that struggle so he can meet you there. And then number three, I'm inviting you to pray, asking God to use this series to make you more of an and person. Because my conviction is all of us tend to fall off this picture on one side or the other. And I'm praying that you would join me in seeking God that we would be and people together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.